Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading in Book 2, Chapter 4, Section 4. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 4. In accordance with the former method, it seems to be said, quote, The law shall perish from the priest, and counsel from the ancients, unquote. Quote, he poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness, where there is no way. Unquote. Again, quote, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Unquote. These passages rather indicate what men become when God deserts them, than what the nature of his agency is when he works in them. But there are other passages which go farther, such as those concerning the hardening of Pharaoh. Quote, I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Unquote. The same thing is afterwards repeated in stronger terms. Did he harden his heart by not softening it? This is indeed true, but he did something more. He gave it in charge to Satan to confirm him in his obstinacy. Hence he had previously said, quote, I am sure he will not let you go. Unquote. The people come out of Egypt, and the inhabitants of a hostile region come forth against them. How were they instigated? Moses certainly declares of Sion that it was the Lord who, quote, had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, unquote, Deuteronomy 2.30. The psalmist relating the same history says, quote, he turned their hearts to hate his people, unquote, Psalm 105, verse 25. You cannot now say that they stumbled merely because they were deprived of divine counsel. For if they are hardened and turned, they are purposely bent to the very end in view. Moreover, whenever God saw it meet to punish the people for their transgression, in what way did he accomplish his purpose by the reprobate? In such a way as shows that the efficacy of the action was in him, and that they were only ministers. At one time he declares, quote, that he will lift an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. Unquote. At another, that he will take a net to ensnare them, and at another, that he will be like a hammer to strike them. But he specially declared that he was not inactive among them, when he called Sennacherib an axe, which was formed and destined to be wielded by his own hand. Augustine is not far from the mark when he states the matter thus, that men's sin is attributable to themselves, that in sinning they produce this or that result, is owing to the mighty power of God, who divides the darkness as he pleases. Section 5. Moreover, that the ministry of Satan is employed to instigate the reprobate, whenever the Lord, in the course of his providence, has any purpose to accomplish in them, will sufficiently appear from a single passage. It is repeatedly said in the first book of Samuel that an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul and troubled him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, and chapter 18, verse 10, and chapter 19, verse 9. It were impious to apply this to the Holy Spirit. An impure spirit must therefore be called a spirit from the Lord, because completely subservient to his purpose, being more an instrument in acting than a proper agent. We should also add what Paul says, quote, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth. Unquote. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. 
But in the same transaction, there is always a wide difference between what the Lord does and what Satan and the ungodly design to do. The wicked instruments which he has under his hand, and can turn as he pleases, he makes subservient to his own justice. They, as they are wicked, give effect to the iniquity conceived in their wicked minds. Everything necessary to vindicate the majesty of God from calumny and cut off any subterfuge on the part of the ungodly has already been expounded in the chapters on providence in Book 1, Chapter 16 through Chapter 18. Here I only meant to show in a few words how Satan reigns in the reprobate and how God works in both. Section 6 in those actions which in themselves are neither good nor bad, and concern the corporeal rather than the spiritual life, the liberty which man possesses, although we have above touched upon it, that is, above, chapter 2, section 13 through 17, has not yet been explained. Some have conceded a free choice to man in such actions, more, I suppose, because they were unwilling to debate a matter of no great moment, than because they wished positively to assert what they were prepared to concede. While I admit that those who hold that man has no ability in himself to do righteousness, hold what is most necessary to be known for salvation, I think it ought not to be overlooked that we owe it to the special grace of God whenever, on one hand, we choose what is for our advantage, and whenever our will inclines in that direction, and on the other, whenever with heart and soul we shun what would otherwise do us harm. And the interference of divine providence goes to the extent not only of making events turn out as was foreseen to be expedient, but of giving the wills of men the same direction. If we look at the administration of human affairs with the eye of sense, we will have no doubt that, so far, they are placed at man's disposal. But if we lend an ear to the many passages of Scripture which proclaim that even in these matters the minds of men are ruled by God, they will compel us to place human choice in subordination to his special influence. Who gave the Israelites such favor in the eyes of the Egyptians that they lent them all their most valuable commodities? Exodus 11.3 They never would have been so inclined of their own accord, their inclinations, therefore, were more overruled by God than regulated by themselves. And surely, had not Jacob been persuaded that God inspires men with diverse affections, as seemeth not, had said of his son Joseph, whom he thought to be some heathen Egyptian, quote, God Almighty give you mercy before the man, unquote. Genesis 43.14 in like manner, the whole church confesses that when the Lord was pleased to pity his people, he made them also to be pitied of all them that carried them captives. Psalm 106, verse 46. In like manner, when his anger was kindled against Saul, so that he prepared himself for battle, the cause is stated to have been that a spirit from God fell upon him. 1 Samuel 11:6. Who dissuaded Absalom from adopting the counsel of Ahithophel? which was wont to be regarded as an oracle. 2 Samuel 17, verse 14 Who disposed Rehoboam to adopt the counsel of the young men? 1 Kings 12:10. Who caused the approach of the Israelites to strike terror into nations formerly distinguished for valor? Even the harlot Rahab recognized the hand of the Lord. Who, on the other hand, filled the hearts of the Israelites with fear and dread? Leviticus 26, verse 36. But he who threatened in the law that he would give them a, quote, trembling heart, unquote. Deuteronomy 28, verse 65. Section 7. It may be objected that these are special examples which cannot be regarded as a general rule. They are sufficient, at all events, to prove the point for which I contend, viz., that whenever God is pleased to make way for his providence, he even in external manners so turns and bends the wills of men, that whatever the freedom of their choice may be, it is still subject to the disposal of God. That your mind depends more on the agency of God than the freedom of your own choice daily experience teaches. Your judgment often fails and in matters of no great difficulty your courage flags. At other times, in matters of the greatest obscurity, the mode of explicating them at once suggests itself, while in matters of moment and danger your mind rises superior to every difficulty. In this way I interpret the words of Solomon, quote, The hearing ear and the seeing eye the Lord hath made even both of them, unquote. Proverbs 20, verse 12. 
For they seem to me to refer not to their creation, but to peculiar grace in the use of them. When he says, quote, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Unquote. Proverbs 21, verse 1. He comprehends the whole race under one particular class. If any will is free from subjection, it must be that of one possessed of regal power, and in a manner exercising dominion over other wills. But if it is under the hand of God, our surely cannot be exempt from it. On this subject, there is an admirable sentiment of Augustine, quote, Scripture, if it be carefully examined, will show not only that the good wills of men are made good by God out of evil, and when so made are directed to good acts, even to eternal life, but those which retain the elements of the world are in the power of God, to turn them whither he pleases, and when he pleases, either to perform acts of kindness, or by a hidden, indeed, but at the same time most just judgment, to inflict punishment. Unquote. Section 8. Let the reader here remember that the power of the human will is not to be estimated by the event, as some unskillful persons are absurdly wont to do. They think it an elegant and ingenious proof of the bondage of the human will that even the greatest monarchs are sometimes thwarted in their wishes. But the ability of which we speak must be considered as within the man, not measured by outward success. In discussing the subject of free will, the question is not whether external obstacles will permit a man to execute what he has internally resolved, but whether in any manner whatever he has a free power of judging and of willing. If men possess both of these, Attalus Regulus, shut up in a barrel studded with sharp nails, will have a will no less free than Augustus Caesar, ruling with imperial sway over a large portion of the globe. Chapter 5 The Arguments Usually Alleged in Support of Free Will Refuted There are 19 sections. Section 1 Enough would seem to have been said on the subject of man's will, were there not some who endeavor to urge him to his ruin by false opinion of liberty, and at the same time, in order to support their own opinion, assail ours. First, they gather together some absurd inferences, by which they endeavor to bring odium upon our doctrine, as if it were abhorrent to common sense, and then they oppose it with certain passages of Scripture. See below, section 6. Both devices we shall dispose of in their order. If sin, say they, is necessary, it ceases to be sin. If it is voluntary, it may be avoided. Such, too, were the weapons with which Pelagius assailed Augustine. But we are unwilling to crush them by the weight of his name, until we have satisfactorily disposed of the objections themselves. I deny, therefore, that sin ought to be the less imputed because it is necessary. And, on the other hand, I deny the inference that sin may be avoided because it is voluntary. If any one will dispute with God and endeavor to evade his judgment by pretending that he could not have done otherwise, the answer already given is sufficient that it is owing not to creation, but the corruption of nature that man has become the slave of sin and can will nothing but evil. For whence that impotence of which the wicked so readily avail themselves is an excuse, but just because Adam voluntarily subjected himself to the tyranny of the devil? Hence, the corruption by which we are held bound, as with chains, originated in the first man's revolt from his Maker. If all men are justly held guilty of this revolt, let them not think themselves excused by a necessity in which they see the clearest cause of their condemnation. But this I have fully explained above and in the case of the devil himself, have given an example of one who sins not less voluntarily that he sins necessarily. I have also shown in the case of the elect angels that though their will cannot decline from good, it does not therefore cease to be will. This Bernard shrewdly explains when he says that we are the more miserable in this that the necessity is voluntary. And yet this necessity so binds us who are subject to it that we are the slaves of sin, as we have already observed. The second step in the reasoning is vicious, because it leaps from voluntary to free. Whereas we have proved above that a thing may be done voluntarily, though not subject to free choice. Section 2 They add that unless virtue and vice proceed from free choice, it is absurd either to punish man or reward him. Although this argument is taken from Aristotle, I admit that it is also used by Chrysostom and Jerome. Jerome, however, does not disguise that it was familiar to the Pelagians. 
He even quotes their words, quote, If grace acts in us, grace, and not we who do the work, will be crowned, unquote. With regard to punishment, I answer that it is properly inflicted on those by whom the guilt is contracted. What matters it whether you sin with a free or an enslaved judgment, so long as you sin voluntarily, especially when man is proved to be a sinner because he is under the bondage of sin? In regard to the rewards of righteousness, is there any great absurdity in acknowledging that they depend on the kindness of God rather than our own merits? How often do we meet in Augustine with this expression, quote, God crowns not our merits but his own gifts, and the name of reward is given not to what is due to our merits, but to the recompense of grace previously bestowed, unquote. Some seem to think there is acuteness in the remark that there is no place at all for the mind if good works do not spring from free will as their proper source. But in thinking this so very unreasonably, they are widely mistaken. Augustine does not hesitate uniformly to describe as necessary the very thing which they count it impious to acknowledge. Thus he asks, quote, What is human merit? He who came to bestow not due recompense, but free grace, though himself free from sin and the giver of freedom, found all men sinners. Unquote. Again, quote, If you are to receive your due, you must be punished. What then is done? God has not rendered you due punishment, but bestows upon you unmerited grace. If you wish to be an alien from grace, boast your merits. Unquote. Again, quote, you are nothing in yourself. Sin is yours. Merit God's. Punishment is your due. And when the reward shall come, God shall crown his own gifts, not your merits. Unquote. To the same effect, he elsewhere says that grace is not of merit, but merit of grace. And shortly after, he concludes that God, by his gifts, anticipates all our merit, that he may thereby manifest his own merit and give what is absolutely free, because he sees nothing in us that can be a ground of salvation. But why extend the list of quotations, when similar sentiments are ever and anon recurring in his works? The abettors of this error would see a still better reputation of it if they would attend to the source from which the apostle derives the glory of the saints. Quote, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 30. On what ground, then, the apostle being judge in Second Timothy 4, 8, are believers crowned? Because by the mercy of God, not their own exertions, they are predestinated, called, and justified. Away, then, with the vain fear that unless free will stand, there will no longer be any merit. It is most foolish to take alarm and recoil from that which Scripture inculcates. Quote, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. You see how everything is denied free will for the very purpose of leaving no room for merit. And yet, as the beneficence and liberality of God are manifold and inexhaustible, the grace which he bestows upon us inasmuch as he makes it our own, he recompenses as if the virtuous acts were our own. Section 3 but it is added, in terms which seem to be borrowed from Chrysostom, that if our will possesses not the power of choosing good or evil, all who are partakers of the same nature must be alike good or alike bad. A sentiment akin to this occurs in the work De Vocation Gentium, usually attributed to Ambrose, in which it is argued that no one would ever decline from faith did not the grace of God leave us in a mutable state. It is strange that such men should have so blundered, how did it fail to occur to Chrysostom that it is divine election which distinguishes among men? We have not the least hesitation to admit what Paul strenuously maintains, that all without exception are depraved and given over to wickedness. But at the same time, we add, that through the mercy of God all do not continue in wickedness. Therefore, while we all labor naturally under the same disease, those only recover health to whom the Lord is pleased to put forth his healing hand. The others whom, in just judgment, he passes over, pine and rot away till they are consumed. And this is the only reason why some persevere to the end, and others, after beginning their course, fall away. Perseverance is the gift of God, which he does not lavish promiscuously on all, but imparts to whom he pleases. 
If it is asked how the difference arises, why some steadily persevere and others prove deficient in steadfastness, we can give no other reason than that the Lord, by his mighty power, strengthens and sustains the former, so that they perish not, while he does not furnish the same assistance to the latter, but leaves them to be monuments of instability. Section 4. Still it is insisted that exhortations are vain, warnings superfluous, and rebukes absurd if the sinner possesses not the power to obey. When similar objections were urged against Augustine, he was obliged to write his book, Declaration et Gautia, where he has fully disposed of them. The substance of his answer to his opponents is this, quote, O man, learn from the precept what you ought to do. Learn from correction that it is your own fault you have not the power, and learn in prayer whence it is that you may receive the power." Unquote. Very similar is the argument of his book, De Spiritu et Litera, in which he shows that God does not measure the precepts of his law by human strength, but, after ordering what is right, freely bestows on his elect the power of fulfilling it. The subject, indeed, does not require a long discussion, for we are not singular in our doctrine, but have Christ and all his apostles with us. Let our opponents then consider how they are to come off victorious in a contest which they wage with such antagonists. Christ declares, quote, Without me ye can do nothing, unquote. John 15.5 Does he the less censure and chastise those who without him did wickedly? Does he the less exhort every man to be intent on good works? How severely does Paul inveigh against the Corinthians for want of charity? In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And yet, at the same time, he prays that charity may be given them by the Lord. In the epistle to the Romans, he declares that, quote, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Unquote. Romans 9.16 Still he ceases not to warn, exhort, and rebuke them. Why then do they not expostulate with God for making sport with men, by demanding of them things which he alone can give, and chastising them for faults committed through want of his grace? Why do they not admonish Paul to spare those who have it not in their power to will or to run, unless the mercy of God, which has forsaken them, proceed? As if the doctrine were not founded on the strongest reason, reason which no serious inquirer can fail to perceive. The extent to which doctrine, and exhortation, and rebuke are in themselves able to change the mind is indicated by Paul when he says, quote, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. In like manner, we see that Moses delivers the precepts of the law under a heavy sanction, and that the prophets strongly urge and threaten transgressors, though they at the same time confess that men are wise only when an understanding heart is given them, that it is the proper work of God to circumcise the heart, and to change it from stone into flesh, to write his law on their inward parts, in short, to renew souls, so as to give efficacy to doctrine. Section 5 what purpose, then, is served by exhortations? It is this. As the wicked, with obstinate heart, despise them, they will be a testimony against them when they stand at the judgment seat of God. Nay, they even now strike and lash their consciences. For, however they may petulantly deride, they cannot disapprove them. But what, you will ask, can a miserable mortal do when softness of heart, which is necessary to obedience, is denied him? I ask and reply, why have recourse to evasion, since hardness of heart cannot be imputed to any but the sinner himself? The ungodly, though they would gladly evade the divine admonitions, are forced, whether they will or not, to feel their power. But their chief use is to be seen in the case of believers, in whom the Lord, while he always acts by his Spirit, also omits not the instrumentality of his word, but employs it, and not without effect. Let this, then, be a standing truth that the whole strength of the godly consists in the grace of God, according to the words of the prophet. Quote, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes. Unquote. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20. But it will be asked, why are they now admonished of their duty, and not rather left to the guidance of the Spirit? 
why are they urged with exhortations when they cannot hasten any faster than the Spirit impels them? And why are they chastised, if at any time they go astray, saying that this is caused by the necessary infirmity of the flesh? Quote, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Unquote. If, in order to prepare us for the grace which enables us to obey exhortation, God sees meet to employ exhortation, what is there in such an arrangement for you to carp and scoff at? Had exhortations and reprimands no other profit with the godly than to convince them of sin, they could not be deemed altogether useless. Now, when by the Spirit of God acting within, they have the effect of inflaming their desire of good, of arousing them from lethargy, of destroying the pleasure and honeyed sweetness of sin, making it hateful and loathsome, who will presume to cavil at them as superfluous? Should any one wish a clear reply, let him take the following. God works in his elect in two ways, inwardly by his Spirit, outwardly by his Word, by his Spirit illuminating their minds, and training their hearts to the practice of righteousness. He makes them new creatures, while by his Word he stimulates them to long and seek for his renovation. In both he exerts the might of his hand in proportion to the measure in which he dispenses them. The Word, when addressed to the reprobate, though not effectual for their amendment, has another use. It urges their consciences now, and will render them more inexcusable on the day of judgment. Thus, our Savior, while declaring that none can come to him but those whom the Father draws, and that the elect come after they have heard and learned of the Father, John 6, verses 44 and 45, does not lay aside the office of teacher, but carefully invites those who must be taught inwardly by the Spirit before they can make any profit. The reprobate, again, are admonished by Paul that the doctrine is not in vain because, while it is in them a savor of death unto death, it is still a sweet savor unto God. 2 Corinthians 2.16 Section 6 The enemies of this doctrine are at great pains in collecting passages of Scripture, as if unable to accomplish anything by their weight, they were to overwhelm us by their number. But as in battle... When it is come to close quarters, an unwarlike multitude, how great soever the pomp and show they make, give way after a few blows and take to flight, so we shall have little difficulty here in disposing of our opponents and their host. All the passages which they pervert in opposing us are very similar in their import, and hence, when they are arranged under their proper heads, one answer will suffice for several. It is not necessary to give a separate consideration to each. Precepts seem to be regarded as their stronghold. These they think so accommodated to their abilities as to make it follow as a matter of course that whatever they enjoin we are able to perform. Accordingly, they run over all the precepts and by them fix the measure of our power. For, say they, when God enjoins meekness, submission, love, chastity, piety, and holiness, and when he forbids anger, pride, theft, uncleanness, idolatry, and the like, he either mocks us or only requires things which are in our power. All the precepts which they thus heap together may be divided into three classes. Some enjoin a first conversion unto God, others speak simply of the observance of the law, and others inculcate perseverance in the grace which has been received. We shall first treat of precepts in general, and then proceed to consider each separate class. But the abilities of man are equal to the precepts of the divine law has long been a common idea, and has some show of plausibility. It is founded, however, on the grossest ignorance of the law. Those who deem it a kind of sacrilege to say that the observance of the law is impossible insist, as their strongest argument, that if it is so, the law has been given in vain. See below in chapter 7, section 5. For they speak just as if Paul had never said anything about the law. But what, pray, is meant by saying that the law, quote, was added to the cause of transgressions, unquote. Quote, by the law is the knowledge of sin, unquote. Quote, I had not known sin, but by the law, unquote. Quote, the law entered that the offense might abound, unquote. Galatians 3.19, Romans 3.20, and 7, verse 7, and 5, verse 20. Is it meant that the law was to be limited to our strength, lest it should be given in vain? Is it not rather meant that it was placed far above us in order to convince us of our utter feebleness? Paul indeed declares that charity is the end and fulfilling of the law. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 
but when he prays that the minds of the Thessalonians may be filled with it, he clearly enough acknowledges that the law sounds in our ears without profit if God do not implant it thoroughly in our hearts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 Section 7 I admit, indeed, that if the Scripture taught nothing else on the subject than that the law is a rule of life by which we ought to regulate our pursuits, I should at once assent to their opinion. But since it carefully and clearly explains that the use of the law is manifold, the proper course is to learn from that explanation what the power of the law is in man. In regard to the present question, while it explains what our duty is, it teaches that the power of obeying it is derived from the goodness of God, and it accordingly urges us to pray that this power may be given us. If there were merely a command and no promise, it would be necessary to try whether our strength were sufficient to fulfill the command. But since promises are annexed, which proclaim not only that aid, but that our whole power is derived from divine grace, they at the same time abundantly testify that we are not only unequal to the observance of the law, but mere fools in regard to it. Therefore, let us hear no more of a proportion between our ability and the divine precepts, as if the Lord had accommodated the standard of justice which he was to give in the law to our feeble capacities. We should rather gather from the promises how ill provided we are, having in everything so much need of grace. But say they, who will believe that the Lord designed his law for blocks and stones? There is no wish to make any one believe this. The ungodly are neither blocks nor stones. When taught by the law that their lusts are offensive to God, they are proved guilty by their own confession. Nor are the godly blocks or stones when, admonished of their powerlessness, they take refuge in grace. To this effect are the pithy sayings of Augustine, quote, God orders what we cannot do, that we may know what we ought to ask of him. There is a great utility in precepts, if all that is given to free will is to do greater honor to divine grace. Faith acquires what the law requires. Nay, the law requires, in order that faith may acquire what is thus required. Nay, more, God demands of us faith itself, and finds not what he thus demands, until by giving he makes it possible to find it." Unquote. Again he says, quote, Let God give what he orders, and order what he wills. Unquote. Section 8. This will be more clearly seen by again attending to the three classes of precepts to which we have referred. Both in the law and in the prophets, God repeatedly calls upon us to turn to him. But on the other hand, a prophet exclaims, quote, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely, after that I was turned, I repented. Unquote. He orders us to circumcise the foreskins of our hearts. But Moses declares that this circumcision is made by his own hand. In many passages he demands a new heart, but in others he declares that he gives it. As Augustine says, what God promises, we ourselves do not through our choice or nature, but he himself does by grace. Unquote. The same observation is made when, in enumerating the rules of Tychonius, he states the third in effect to be that we distinguish carefully between the law and the promises, or between the commands and grace. Let them now go and gather from precepts what man's power of obedience is, when they would destroy the divine grace by which the precepts themselves are accomplished. The precepts of the second class are simply those which enjoin us to worship God, to obey and adhere to his will, to do his pleasure and follow his teaching. But innumerable passages testify that every degree of purity, piety, holiness, and justice which we possess is his gift. And the third class of precepts is the exhortation of Paul and Barnabas to the proselytes, as recorded by Luke. They, quote, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, unquote. Acts 13, verse 43. But the source from which this power of continuance must be sought is elsewhere explained by Paul when he says, quote, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Unquote. Ephesians 6, verse 10. In another passage he says, quote, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 30. But as the thing here enjoined could not be performed by man, he prays in behalf of the Thessalonians that God would count them, quote, worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power, unquote. 
2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. In the same way, in the second epistle to the Corinthians, when treating of alms, he repeatedly commends their good and pious inclination. A little farther on, however, he exclaims, quote, Thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, unquote. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 and 17. If Titus could not even perform the office of being a mouth to exhort others, except insofar as God suggested, how could the others have been voluntary agents in acting if the Lord Jesus had not directed their hearts? Section 9. Some who would be thought more acute endeavor to evade all these passages by the quibble that there is nothing to hinder us from contributing our part while God at the same time supplies our deficiencies. They, moreover, adduce passages from the prophets in which the work of our conversion seems to be shared between God and ourselves. Quote, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Unquote. Zechariah 1, verse 3. The kind of assistance which God gives us has been shown above in sections 7 and 8 and need not now be repeated. One thing only I ask to be conceded to me that it is vain to think we have a power of fulfilling the law merely because we are enjoined to obey it. Since, in order to our fulfilling the divine precepts, the grace of the lawgiver is both necessary and has been promised to us, this much at least is clear, that more is demanded of us than we are able to pay. Nor can any cavil evade the declaration in Jeremiah that the covenant which God made with his ancient people was broken, because it was only of the latter that to make it effectual it was necessary for the Spirit to interpose and train the heart to obedience. Jeremiah 31, verse 32. The opinion we now combat is not aided by the words, quote, Turn unto me, and I will turn unto you, unquote. The turning there spoken of is not that by which God renews the heart unto repentance but that in which, by bestowing prosperity, he manifests his kindness and favor, just in the same way as he sometimes expresses his displeasure by sending adversity. The people complaining under the many calamities which befell them, that they were forsaken by God, he answers that his kindness would not fail them, if they would return to a right course, and to himself the standard of righteousness. The passage, therefore, is wrested from its proper meaning when it is made to countenance the idea that the work of conversion is divided between God and man. See above in chapter 2, section 27. We have only glanced briefly at this subject, as the proper place for it will occur when we come to the treat of the law. See chapter 7, sections 2 and 3. Section 10. The second class of objections is akin to the former. They allege the promises in which the Lord makes a passion with our will. Such are the following, quote, Seek good and not evil that ye may live, unquote. Amos 5, verse 14. Quote, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it, unquote. Isaiah 1, verses 19 and 20. Quote, if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then thou shalt not remove. Unquote. Jeremiah 4, verse 1. Quote, it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and do all the commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Unquote. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. There are other similar passages. Leviticus 26, verse 3, etc. They think that the blessings contained in these promises are offered to our will absurdly and in mockery if it is not in our power to secure or reject them. It is indeed an easy matter to indulge in declamatory complaint on this subject, to say that we are cruelly mocked by the Lord when he declares that his kindness depends on our will if we are not masters of our will, that it would be a strange liberality on the part of God to set his blessings before us while we have no power of enjoying them, a strange certainty of promises, which, to prevent their ever being fulfilled, are made to depend on an impossibility. Of promises of this description, which have a condition annexed to them, we shall elsewhere speak, and make it plain that there is nothing absurd in the impossible fulfillment of them. In regard to the matter in hand, I deny that God cruelly mocks us when he invites us to merit blessings which he knows we are altogether unable to merit. The promises being offered alike to believers and to the ungodly have their use in regard to both. 
as God, by his precepts, stings the consciences of the ungodly, so as to prevent them from enjoying their sins while they have no remembrance of his judgments, so, in his promises, he in a manner takes them to witness how unworthy they are of his kindness. Who can deny that it is most just and most becoming in God to do good to those who worship him, and to punish with due severity those who despise his majesty? God, therefore, proceeds in due order, when, though the wicked are bound by the fetters of sin, he lays down the law in his promises that he will do them good only if they depart from their wickedness. This would be right, though his only object were to let them understand that they are deservedly excluded from the favor due to his true worshipers. On the other hand, as he desires by all means to stir up believers to supplicate his grace, it surely should not seem strange that he attempts to accomplish by promises the same thing which, as we have shown, he to their great benefit accomplishes by means of precepts. Being taught by precepts what the will of God is, we are reminded of our wretchedness in being so completely at variance with that will, and at the same time are stimulated to invoke the aid of the Spirit to guide us into the right path. But as our indolence is not sufficiently aroused by precepts, promises are added that they may attract us by their sweetness and produce a feeling of love for the precept. The greater our desire of righteousness, the greater will be our earnestness to obtain the grace of God. And thus it is that in the protestations, if ye be willing, if thou shalt hearken, the Lord neither attributes to us a full power of willing and hearkening, nor yet mocks us for our impotence. Section 11 the third class of objections is not unlike the other two, for they produce passages in which God upbraids his people for their ingratitude, intimating that it was not his fault that they did not obtain all kinds of favor from his indulgence. In such passages the following are examples, quote, The Amalekites and the Canaanites are before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord, therefore the Lord will not be with you, unquote. Numbers 14, verse 43. Quote, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Unquote. Jeremiah 7, verses 13 and 14. Quote, they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Unquote. Jeremiah 32, verse 23. How, they ask, can such upbraiding be directed against those who have it in their power immediately to reply, Prosperity was dear to us. We feared adversity, that we did not, in order to obtain the one and avoid the other, obey the Lord, and listen to his voice, is owing to its not being free for us to do so, in consequence of our subjection to the dominion of sin. In vain, therefore, are we upbraided with evils which it was not in our power to escape. But to say nothing of the pretext of necessity, which is but a feeble and flimsy defense of their conduct, can they, I ask, deny their guilt? If they are held convicted of any fault, the Lord is not unjust in upbraiding them for having, by their own perverseness, deprived themselves of the advantages of his kindness. Let them say, then, whether they can deny that their own will is the depraved cause of the rebellion. If they find within themselves a fountain of wickedness, why do they stand, declaiming about extraneous causes with the view of making it appear that they are not the authors of their own destruction? If it be true that it is not for another's faults that sinners are both deprived of the divine favor and visited with punishment, there is good reason why they should hear these rebukes from the mouth of God. If they obstinately persist in their vices, let them learn in their calamities to accuse and detest their own wickedness instead of charging God with cruelty and injustice. If they have not manifested docility, let them, under a feeling of disgust at the sins which they see to be the cause of their misery and ruin, return to the right path, and with serious contrition, confess the very thing of which the Lord, by his rebuke, reminds them. Of what use those upbraidings of the prophets above quoted are to believers appears from the solemn prayer of Daniel, as given in his ninth chapter. Of their use in regard to the ungodly, we see an example in the Jews to whom Jeremiah was ordered to explain the cause of their miseries, though the event could not be otherwise than the Lord had foretold. Quote, 
Therefore thou shalt speak these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Unquote. Jeremiah 7, verse 27. Of what use, then, was it to talk to the deaf? It was, that even against their will they might understand that what they heard was true, and that it was impious blasphemy to transfer the blame of their wickedness to God when it resided in themselves. These few explanations will make it very easy for the reader to disentangle himself from the immense heap of passages containing both precepts and reprimands, which the enemies of divine grace are in the habit of piling up, that they may thereon erect their statue of free will. The psalmist upbraids the Jews as, quote, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, unquote. Psalm 78, verse 8. And in another passage, he exhorts the men of his time, quote, Harden not your heart, unquote. Psalm 95, verse 8. This implies that the whole blame of the rebellion lies in human depravity, but it is foolish thence to infer that the heart, the preparation of which is from the Lord, may be equally bent in either direction. The psalmist says, quote, I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, unquote. Psalm 119, verse 112, meaning that with willing and cheerful readiness of mind, he had devoted himself to God. He does not boast, however, that he was the author of that disposition, for in the same psalm he acknowledges it to be the gift of God. We must therefore attend to the admonition of Paul when he thus addresses believers, quote, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Unquote. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He ascribes to them a part in acting that they may not indulge in carnal sloth, but by enjoining fear and trembling, he humbles them so as to keep them in remembrance that the very thing which they are ordered to do is the proper work of God, distinctly intimating that believers act, if I may so speak, passively, inasmuch as the power is given them from heaven, and cannot in any way be arrogated to themselves. Accordingly, when Peter exhorts us to, quote, add to faith virtue, unquote, 2 Peter 1, 5, he does not concede to us the possession of a second place, as if we could do anything separately. He only arouses the sluggishness of our flesh, by which faith itself is frequently stifled. To the same effect are the words of Paul, he says, quote, quench not the spirit, unquote, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, because a spirit of sloth, if not guarded against, is ever and anon creeping in upon believers. But should any thence infer that it is entirely in their own power to foster the offered light, his ignorance will easily be refuted by the fact that the very diligence which Paul enjoins is derived only from God, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. We are often commanded to purge ourselves of all impurity, though the Spirit claims this as his peculiar office. In fine, that what properly belongs to God is transferred to us only by way of concession is plain from the words of John, quote, He that is begotten of God keepeth himself, unquote. 1 John 5, verse 18. The advocates of free will fasten upon the expression, as if it implied that we are kept partly by the power of God, partly by our own, whereas the very keeping of which the apostle speaks is itself from heaven. Hence, Christ prays his Father to keep us from evil. John 17, verse 15. And we know that believers in their warfare against Satan owe their victory to the armor of God. Accordingly, Peter, after saying, quote, Ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, unquote, immediately adds by way of correction, quote, through the Spirit, unquote, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. In fine, the nothingness of human strength in the spiritual contest is briefly shown by John when he says that, quote, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, unquote, 1 John 3, verse 9. He elsewhere gives the reason, quote, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, unquote. 1 John 5, verse 4. Section 12. But a passage is produced from the law of Moses, which seems very adverse to the view now given. After promulgating the law, he takes the people to witness in these terms, quote, This commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven 
that thou shouldst say, Who shall go up for us to heaven, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it, and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth, and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Unquote. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11, 12, and 14. Certainly, if this is to be understood of mere precepts, I admit that it is of no little importance to the matter in hand, for though it were easy to evade the difficulty by saying that the thing here treated of is not the observance of the law, but the facility and readiness of becoming acquainted with it, some scruple, perhaps, would still remain. The Apostle Paul, however, no mean interpreter, removes all doubt when he affirms that Moses here spoke of the doctrine of the gospel. Romans 10, verse 8. If any one is so refractory as to contend that Paul violently rested the words in applying them to the gospel, though his hardihood is chargeable with impiety, we are still able, independently of the authority of the apostle, to repel the objection. For, if Moses spoke of precepts merely, he was only inflating the people with vain confidence. Had they attempted the observance of the law in their own strength, as a matter in which they should find no difficulty, what else could have been the result than to throw them headlong? Where, then, was that easy means of observing the law when the only access to it was over a fatal precipice? Accordingly, nothing is more certain than that under these words is comprehended the covenant of mercy, which had been promulgated along with the demands of the law. A few verses before he had said, quote, The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. Unquote. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Therefore the readiness of which he immediately after speaks was placed not in the power of man, but in the protection and help of the Holy Spirit, who mightily performs his own work in our weakness. The passage, however, is not to be understood of precepts simply, but rather of the gospel promises which, so far from proving any power in us to fulfill righteousness, utterly disprove it. This is confirmed by the testimony of Paul, when he observes that the gospel holds forth salvation to us, not under the harsh, arduous, and impossible terms on which the law treats with us, namely that those shall obtain it who fulfill all its demands, but on terms easy, expeditious, and readily obtained. This passage, therefore, tends in no degree to establish the freedom of the human will. Section 13. They are wont also to adduce certain passages in which God is said occasionally to try men by withdrawing the assistance of his grace, and to wait until they turn to him, as in Hosea, quote, I will go and return to my place, till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face, unquote. Hosea 5, verse 15. It were absurd, they say, that the Lord should wait till Israel should seek his face, if their minds were not flexible so as to turn in either direction of their own accord. As if anything were more common in the prophetical writings than for God to put on the semblance of rejecting and casting off his people until they reform their lives. But what can our opponents extract from such threats, if they mean to maintain that a people, when abandoned by God, are able of themselves to think of turning unto him, they will do it in the very face of Scripture? On the other hand, if they admit that divine grace is necessary to conversion, why do they dispute with us? But while they admit that grace is so far necessary, they insist on reserving some ability for man. How do they prove it? Certainly not from this, nor any similar passage. For it is one thing to withdraw from man, and look to what he will do when thus abandoned, and left to himself, and another thing, to assist his powers, whatever they may be, in proportion to their weakness. What, then, it will be asked, is meant by such expressions? I answer just the same as if God were to say, Since nothing is gained by admonishing, exhorting, rebuking the stubborn people, I will withdraw for a little, and silently lead them to be afflicted. I shall see whether, after long calamity, any remembrance of me will return, and induce them to seek my face. But by the departure of the Lord to a distance is meant the withdrawal of prophecy. By his waiting to see what men will do is meant that he, while silent, and in a manner hiding himself, tries them for a season with various afflictions. Both he does that he may humble us the more, for we shall sooner be broken than corrected by the strokes of adversity, unless his spirit train us to docility. 
Moreover, when the Lord, offended, and as it were fatigued with our obstinate perverseness, leaves us for a while by withdrawing his word in which he is wont in some degree to manifest his presence, and makes trial of what we will do in his absence, from this it is erroneously inferred that there is some power of free will, the extent of which is to be considered and tried, whereas the only end which he has in view is to bring us to an acknowledgment of our utter nothingness. Section 14 Another objection is founded on a mode of speaking which is constantly observed both in Scripture and in common discourse. Good works are said to be ours, and we are said to do what is holy and acceptable to God, just as we are said to commit sin. But if sins are justly imputed to us, as proceeding from ourselves, for the same reason, say they, some share must certainly be attributed to us in works of righteousness. It could not be accordant with reason to say that we do those things which we are incapable of doing of our own motion, God moving us as if we were stones. These expressions, therefore, it is said, indicate that while in the matter of grace we give the first place to God, a secondary place must be assigned to our agency. If the only thing here insisted on were that good works are termed ours, I, in my turn, would reply that the bread which we ask God to give us is also termed ours. What then can be inferred from the title of possession, but simply that, by the kindness and free gift of God, that becomes ours, which in other respects is by no means due to us? Therefore, let them either ridicule the same absurdity in the Lord's Prayer, or let them cease to regard it as absurd, that good works should be called ours, though our only property in them is derived from the liberality of God. But there is something stronger in the fact that we are often said in Scripture to worship God, do justice, obey the law, and follow good works. These being proper offices of the mind and will, how can they be consistently referred to the Spirit, and at the same time attributed to us, unless there be some concurrence on our part with the divine agency? This difficulty will be easily disposed of if we attend to the manner in which the Holy Spirit acts in the righteous. The similitude with which they individually assail us is foreign to the purpose. For who is so absurd as to imagine that movement in man differs in nothing from the impulse given to a stone? Nor can anything of the kind be inferred from our doctrine. To the natural powers of man we ascribe approving and rejecting, willing and not willing, striving and resisting, these approving vanity, rejecting solid good, willing evil and not willing good, striving for wickedness and resisting righteousness. What, then, does the Lord do? If he sees me to employ depravity of this description as an instrument of his anger, he gives it whatever aim and direction he pleases that, by a guilty hand, he may accomplish his own good work. A wicked man, thus serving the power of God, while he is bent only on following his own lust, can we compare to a stone which, driven by an external impulse, is borne along without motion or sense or will of its own? We see how wide the difference is. But how stands the case with the godly, as to whom chiefly the question is raised? When God erects his kingdom in them, he, by means of his spirit, curbs their will, that it may not follow its natural bent, and be carried hither and thither by vagrant lusts, bends, frames, trains, and guides it according to the rule of his justice, so as to incline it to righteousness and holiness, and establishes it and strengthens it by the energy of his spirit, that it may not stumble or fall. For which reason Augustine thus expresses himself, quote, It will be said, We are therefore acted upon, and do not act. Nay, you act, and are acted upon, and you then act well when you are acted upon by one that is good. The Spirit of God, who actuates you, is your helper in acting, and bears the name of helper, because you too do something, unquote. In the former member of this sentence, he reminds us that the agency of man is not destroyed by the motion of the Holy Spirit, because nature furnishes the will which is guided so as to aspire to good. As to the second member of the sentence, in which he says that the very idea of help implies that we also do something, we must not understand it as if he were attributing to us some independent power of action. But not to foster a feeling of sloth, he reconciles the agency of God with our own agency, by saying that to wish is from nature, to wish well is from grace. Accordingly, he had said a little before, quote, Did not God assist us? We should not only not be able to conquer, but not able even to fight. Unquote. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. 
many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.